Section 1 of The Romance of the Romanovs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Morabe. The Romance of the Romanovs by Joseph Martin McCabe. Section 1. Chapter 1. The Primitive Democracy of the Slav. A little south of the center of Europe rises the great curve of the Carpathian Mountains. The sprawling bulk of this long chain, rising in places until its crown shines with snow and ice, formed a natural barrier to the spread of Roman civilization. It enfolded and protected the plains of Hungary and the green valley of the Danube, and it seemed to set a limit to every decent ambition. Beyond it, men saw a vast and dreary plain filled with wild peoples whom the Romans and Greeks called Scythians. It was, in effect, in those days, almost the dividing line of Europe and Asia. One branch of the great European race had gone down into Greece and, becoming civilized, remained there. Another branch had found the blue waters and sunny skies in Italy. A third, the vast horde of the Teutons, was moving heavily and slowly southward in the west. But about the eastern feet of the Carpathians was a little northern people, the Slavs, which may one day fill the earth's chronicle when Teton has followed Greek and Roman into the inevitable tomb of warriors, where these Slavs came from and what was their precise kinship to the other northerners and to the Asiatic peoples we do not confidently know. Some tens of thousands of years before the Christian era, the last spell of the Ice Age had locked the north of Europe. It seems that a branch of the human family followed the retreating ice sheet and, in the bracing winds which blew off the frozen regions, shed its weaklings and became the vigorous northern race. From this came the successive waves of Greeks and Romans, Goths and Vandals, English and Norman and German. From these northern forests seem also to have come the Slavs, who split the barrier of the Carpathians into two great streams, Bohemians and Serbs to the west, and Russians, as they were later called, to the east. We have not much information about this people which settled across the limit of civilization. To the Romans they were part of the medley of barbarism, which got a rude living out of the bleak north. A few later Greek writers had some acquaintance with them, and an early Russian monk, Nestor, gathered their traditions into a chronicle, and described them as they were before the development of autocracy obliterated their native features. From these sources, we learn that the Slavs were singularly democratic for people at their stage of evolution. We know today the real origins of kingships and princedoms, which was hidden from our fathers by legends of divine right. The right of a man to rule his fellows came of his possession of a stronger arm or wiser head, or a combination of the two, a plausible enough theory until kings began to insist on leaving the power to their sons, whether or no they left them the strong arm and the wise head. As a rule, the hunt and the battle gave the strong man his opportunity, and in every other nation at the level of the Slavs we find chiefs, who dispense justice and direct warfare, and exact a reward proportionate to their services. It is a common and surprised observation of the early writers, who noticed the Slavs, that they had no chiefs. The monk Nestor, who wrote in their midst at the beginnings of the 12th century, said that they had chiefs, but would not tolerate tyranny. The primitive life of the Slavs had then been modified, as we shall see, but the reports may be reconciled. 
The Slavs had no hereditary families of chiefs, no rulers of tribes who exacted tribute. Nestor gives a very different character to the various tribes of the Slav family. Being a monk, he is unable to give any of them a good character in their pagan days, but we may make a genial allowance for this natural prejudice. Perhaps some of the tribes who were in closer touch with the fierce Finns and Scythians had chiefs. Warfare is the great kingmaker. Clearly, the primitive and normal condition of a Slav community was exceptionally democratic. The one definite institution of those early days that is known to us is the village council, the institution that, being most deeply rooted in the heart of the Slav, has survived all autocracies by divine right and is familiar today to the whole world as the Mir. In ancient Slavdom, the family was not the basis of the state. It was a state, or there was no state. An enlarged family, for the Slavs were social and peaceful folk, and the young, founding a new family, clung to the home until it grew too small and some must wander afield. With cousins and children and grandchildren was the unit. The father had patriarchal power in his little colony, and when he departed the next oldest and wisest, a brother generally took up the mild sway. Such families grew into villages, or settlements, in a few generations. Not too large, for they lived on the land, yet compact, for there were plenty of human wolves east of the Carpathians. The Finns and other Asiatic tribes then filled, or roamed over, the vast area we now called Russia, and their code did not forbid the plunder of peaceful agriculturists. New colonies would be founded near the old and formed villages. Out of this grew the Mir, the council in which the heads of the various households met to discuss and decide their common affairs. No doubt some kind of chairman, some sage elder, would be chosen to preside, but it is clear from later practice and early comment that the council only acted upon a unanimous decision. That form of democracy had inconveniences, and when Russia begins to have chroniclers, we find that unanimity was often secured, in a struggle, by pitching the minority into the river. That, at all events, was the original Slav custom. In theory, even a majority could not tyrannize over a minority, much less a minority over a majority. There would be frequent calls for these village councils, as the land, on which most of them work, was held in common. The head of a family owned only his house and enclosure, and was entitled to the harvest of his own labor. Then, there were the rights of hunting in the forest and fishing in the rivers, the constant need to send out new colonies into the eastern wilderness, and especially the need to protect these new colonies from the wandering Asiatics. Flanked by the Carpathians, up which they could not spread, the tribes had to push steadily eastward, and the land was full of Asiatics, for the most part swift and ruthless horsemen. Cooperative defense was as necessary as cooperative council. The elders of many neighboring villages met together in a larger council. There was a rough organization of villages into a canton, or volost. Again, there would probably be a president, and some think that a temporary chief or leader might be appointed in an emergency. But the Slavs had no hereditary rulers, no heads of the various tribes. It also helped to sustain their democratic and communistic life that they had no priests. When priests later come upon the scene, we shall find them very easily becoming the instruments of autocracy. We shall find, as is usual, the autocrat enriching the clergy, and the clergy discovering very impressive legends upon which he may establish his title to rule. In the pagan days of the Slavs, there were no priests. 
the religion was the kind of primitive interpretation of nature which we always find at that level of mental development the fire of the sun the roar of the storm the mysterious fertility of the earth and the awful solemnity of the forest filled the childlike mind with wonder and dread these things were felt to have life a greater life than the puny and limited life of man and the slavs learned to bow to the mighty spirits of the sun and the river and the wind and the earth in particular they mourned the death of the sun and celebrated joyously its annual rebirth and restoration to full glory but they had no priests the heads of the family or the village performed the invocations and the sacrifices we must remember that even in these primitive and patriarchal arrangements there was the germ of autocracy the eldest male was an autocrat so absolute was his power that it is said that when he died wife and servants and horse had to follow him into the nether world there seems here to be some confusion between different tribes and there is evidence that as among the tetons woman was generally respected although there were ancient marriage rites which suggest that at one time brides were stolen and there was some practice of polygamy however that may have been the father of the household was an autocrat we may plead only that he does not seem to have had as in ancient rome power of life and death over his mate such was the slav people when we first discover them about the feet of the carpathians we have next to see how they became the russian people and how contact with civilization and the growth of commerce modified their primitive communism the towering masses of the mountains checked the western expansion of the growing tribes the danube and the outposts of the roman empire the fathers of the rumans shut them out from the south they were as their number increased bound to travel eastward and their pioneers would discover that the central part of this mighty waste of eastern europe was a particularly fertile region from the foot of the carpathians the land spreads in one of the largest plains of the world until it begins to rise toward the ural mountains between the forests and bleak deserts of the north and the arid prairies of the south there are about a hundred and fifty million acres of black earth as rich and fertile as any to be found and south of these a hundred and fifty million acres of ordinary arable land at the beginning of the christian era this great area would be for the most part forest and morass checkered by vast spaces of grassy plain furrowed by broad rivers the advancing colonies of the slavs would discover the fertility of the soil and clear the ground for their corn and flax the rivers gave them abundant fish the forests swarmed with animals which afforded fur and meat and the innumerable wild bees gave them stores of honey and wax for the long winters timber for the vapor bath which the slav family seems already to have held in affection lay on every side we find the slavs especially spreading over this fertile heart of russia about the eighth century of the present era the land had long been held by the finns and other asiatic tribes when in the third century the Goths from the north fell upon them and drove them eastward. In the next century began that more formidable invasion from Asia, which flung the Finns westward once more and cast the Teutons upon the crumbling barrier of the Roman Empire. In the seventh century, a new semi-civilized race, the Khazars, created an empire in southeastern Russia and drove the Asiatic Finns definitely to the north. It was at the close of these great movements that the Slavs moved rapidly over the fertile regions 
between the land of the Finns and the southern kingdom of the Khazars. By the end of the 8th century, the various Slav tribes had overrun the central part of western Russia. The chief change which this migration caused in the life of the Slavs was the development of commerce. The great rivers of the land at once became the highways. Fishers, as well as tillers of the soil, the Slavs would spread along the river valleys, and the junctions of the rivers would naturally become the chief stations for what intercourse there was between the scattered villages. It is probable that in those days, when four-fifths of Russia was marsh and forest, the rivers were deeper than they are today. In our time, they are for the most part shallow throughout the summer. Only in the spring, when the melting snows and rains flushed the broad channels, can large boats ascend them, and in the winter their frozen waters make good passage for the sledge. They became the high roads of the new commonwealth, as the site of the older cities indicates when one glances at the map. The Slavs had, at that time, probably little or no commerce. Some exchange, in kind, of fish, fur, honey, or corn might take place, but the resources were much the same for each village. In a short time after the settlement, however, a busy commercial system was inaugurated. Further north than the Finns were the Scandinavians, whose skill in metalworking was early developed. The Slavs traded with them for swords and spears and axes. To the south, beyond the land of the Khazars, was the chief representative of civilization in the west, the Byzantine, or Constantinopolitan, Empire. The northern tribes had now shattered Roman civilization. The solid roads, the ample schools, the courts of law and municipal institutions established by the Romans in southern Europe were in complete decay, and four-fifths of the city of Rome was a charred and desolate wilderness. But the city which Constantine had founded on the Bosphorus, on the site of ancient Byzantium, lay out of the path of most of the barbarians, and the glory of Constantinople penetrated feebly into the distant forests of Russia. Its soldiers give us our first direct knowledge of the Slavs. Its merchants crossed the Black Sea, ascended the rivers of Russia, and spread before the eager eyes of the Slavs the silks and damasks and velvets, the shining metalwork and imitation jewels, of the great Tsargrad, or City of the Emperors. For these the Slavs could offer choice furs, for an enormous variety of fur-clad animals roamed their forests, as well as honey for the table and wax for the myriad tapers of the Byzantine churches. This busy commerce increased the importance of the settlements at the junction of the rivers. The evenness of the Russian plains, the great depth of soil or clay or glacial rubbish which uniformly covers the level strata below, makes stone scarce in the greater part of the country than occupied by the Slavs. The ordinary village was a cluster of brewed huts made of timber, with roofs of straw and mud. The towns also were of timber, and the accumulation of merchandise in them for traffic or fairs attracted the Asiatic marauders and increased the need of defense. The Vetche, or Democratic Council of the District, grew in importance. Stockades of timber were erected. The Slavs, preferring peace as an agricultural people always does, were compelled to acquire some skill in the art of war. Up to this point, the ninth century, the democracy of the Slavs was unaltered. The villagers were still free and independent men, while the peasantry over the rest of Europe were slaves or serfs. They regulated their own affairs in their mere, 
recognized no central government and paid tribute to neither chiefs nor priests. There was plenty of timber to heat their stoves during the long winter, and in the summer the song and dance cheered the leisure from their labors. The plot of corn in the nests of the wild bees fed them, the plot of flax clothed them, and the winter harvest of furs, taken to the nearest town or fair, gave them many a tawdry luxury from the great cities of the south. Even in the towns they had still no money or currency. It was not until long afterwards that they cut discs of leather to serve the purpose of coinage, and even in the largest settlements or towns, such as Novgorod in the north and Kiev in the south, the democratic council, with unanimous decision, ruled their little affairs. The defect of a primitive democracy of this nature soon became apparent. When the less peaceful neighbors, who surrounded them on every side, made an attack in force, the isolated towns or communities could not defend themselves. The Khazars of the south overspread the nearest Slav districts and virtually enslaved them. The Scandinavian pirates of the Baltic pushed southward from the coast and wrung tribute from them. Either they must establish a compact military organization, which their loose social texture did not easily permit, or they must hire defenders. They chose the latter course, not knowing, as we do, the ultimate price of engaging military chiefs. The Scandinavians, or Norsemen, were as little pacific as any people of Europe, and their large frames and mighty weapons made of them formidable warriors. The Slavs were well acquainted with them. Somehow, they had found the way across Russia to Constantinople, where the services were richly paid. From the southern shores of the Baltic, they descended the northern rivers, and, crossing short stretches of country from river to river, they sailed down the broad waterways to the Black Sea. In the ninth century, the Slavs were familiar with the tall, blue-eyed, blond-haired giants, with heavy spears and formidable axes. The Greeks of the south, who called them Varangians, clothed them in rich armor and made of them a special imperial guard. The Slavs called them Rus, or seafarers, if not pirates, a name they seem to have borrowed from the Finns. This, at least, is what modern scholars make of the ancient legend, given in Nestor, that the men of Rus were foreign warriors invited by the Slavs to come and settle and undertake military service. The story runs that the Slavs of the north, wearied by invasion and pillage, invited these soldiers to defend them and share their goods. Some historians suspect that the legend may be invented by the vanity of the Slavs, who did not care to confess that the northerners had subdued them, but it is not unlikely that they were invited to defend the Slavs as they were invited to defend the emperors of Constantinople. They had already shown the Slavs that those who did not pay voluntarily might have to pay involuntarily. As the democratic institutions of the Slavs survived most strongly in the city where the Norsemen first settled, Novgorod, it does not seem as if they settled in virtue of conquest. In Western Europe, the Northerners, wherever they settled, established the feudal system, which never existed in Russia. The story handed down in Russia, as the land of the Slavs soon came to be called, was that three brothers, Rurik, Sinius, and Truvor, answered the call of the Slavs, and, with their kinsmen and followers, settled on the Baltic coast. This is assigned to the year 862. From those seats they cannot have defended or raised taxes from much of Russia. But when Sinius and Truvor died, Rurik went to settle in Novgorod. 
That city, about a hundred and twenty miles south of Petrograd, was the chief town in the northern part of the route, from north to south. Rurik seems to have built a stone fort overlooking the timber settlement and been content with a kind of tribute for his military services. Novgorod remained, until centuries afterwards, a jealously democratic community. The chief Slav town in the south was Kiev, and to this two of the unruly officers of Rurik's troop, Askold and Deer, led a company of the northerners. As is well known, these northern barbarians, once their barriers were broken down, wandered from end to end of Europe, and even to Carthage and Alexandria, terrifying the natives everywhere with their gigantic frames, their immense axes and swords, their guttural grunts, and their infinite capacity for liquor. The Slavs of Kiev, voluntarily or involuntarily, received the warriors, and a fresh colony of men of Rus was planted. They seem to have infected even some of the Slavs with their piratical spirit, for we read of them leading an expedition down the river and across the Black Sea against Constantinople itself. The next step was to unite the towns of Novgorod and Kiev and bring the remainder of the Slavs under the vague lordship of the Norsemen. This was done by Rurik's brother and successor, Oleg. The Teutonic rule of hereditary succession came in with the northerners, and the men of Novgorod seemed to have had no further choice. Oleg, assumed command, and he marched his troop against the smaller body of his countrymen in the south. Askold and Deer had, he said, acted without orders, and had usurped a lordship which belonged to his brother. Kiev had no more choice than Novgorod. Oleg founded a finer town than the settlement among the marshes of the north. He set up there his court of brawling, drunken warriors, and gradually induced all the tribes of the Slavs to pay him tribute and furnish soldiers. He was so successful that one year he embarked his men on two thousand boats, led them against the imperial city, and forced the Greeks themselves to add to his treasury. The land of Rus was in those days not the spacious Russia of our time. It spread little eastward beyond Novgorod and Kiev, and it was bounded by the Khazars to the south and the Finns and Lithuanians to the north. But it was now Russia, a group of Slav tribes dominated by military caste. It was, however, not yet a nation, certainly not a monarchy. Tax-gathering and defense were the sole duties of the military chief, and as the Slavs had demanded the one, they were not unprepared for the other. But the germ of autocracy was now planted in the soil, and the terrible events of the next few centuries would foster its baleful development. End of section 1